mean, the psalm is a plea for God's justice to reign in the earth, and that is what we continue to uh, pray for and plead that God's justice reigns. Man, let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning as the just God, as we were just singing, you reign before the earth was established, before you created us. Uh, you reign. You always reign. You are the eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we come to you this morning as the one God, as we read earlier in the book of Isaiah, the 45th chapter. You are God. You formed the earth. You made it. You established it. You did not create it in vain or empty. You formed it to be inhabited. Lord, you set a order in creation that is to be followed by all mankind, both saint and sinner alike. All of us were created to worship you. We were not created to worship created things. We were not worship to uh, created, uh, worship things that we have created for ourselves. Father, we were created to worship you as the one true God. And Lord, you've declared this throughout all of Scripture, that you are the Lord and there is no other. You speak righteousness. You declare things that are right. Lord, you are the only source of truth, not the foolish wisdom of man, but the truth which comes from you. And Father, as we come to you this morning as the one true God, we ask you to hear our prayers on that basis. Hear my prayers this morning, Lord, as I, as I pray. Father, I ask you this morning to remember my, uh, my brother, uh, James Patterson, who lost his church to a fire last week. It was a very grievous time for them with their house of worship being destroyed, or basically a total loss by fire still being investigated, but they're worshiping at other churches right now. I pray that you be with him and his leadership team, that you give them wisdom as they seek a way to uh, rebuild um, where they are. Because, Lord, despite whether the building was destroyed or not, they still have a mortgage on it, and they still have to pay that on that property. So I, I pray that you strengthen his members to be faithful, not to abandon ship but to be faithful and to, to give uh, to the work of rebuilding, uh, to pray, to seek you, to seek your face in them rebuilding uh, a house of worship uh, for you and for them. Pray for my coworker Jada, her, her family, uh, losing her nephew in a car accident over uh, this past week, this past Friday, that you be with her sister, She's still in the hospital, as far as I, I've heard, um, in that time of grief and losing a two-year-old, a young man who was not restrained in uh, his seat. Lord, just be with them. Just comfort them uh, with your uh, spirit in this time of loss. Lord, we also pray uh, for our nation, for our um, president, his cabinet, we pray, Lord, that you may turn the hearts of our leaders to you. 
turn their hearts away from sin and sinful policies, sinful proposals, and turn their hearts to you, Lord, to legislate uh, rightly, to legislate in a way, to propose legislation in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, that you work in their hearts, just as you work in all king's hearts. Your, your word says, Lord, that the heart of the king is in your hands. I pray that you place his heart, President Biden, and his cabinet, place their hearts in your hand, Lord, and, and turn their hearts around to do uh, what is right and just in your eyes concerning different things that they propose. And Lord, we pray for our state leader, uh, Governor Kay Ivey, that you be with her, uh, strengthen her, her leadership. May she turn to you also, Lord, and be guided by uh, your spirit and be guided by uh, what your word prescribes. Our local leaders, our mayors, and our uh, city councils and our county commissioners, our district attorneys, everyone in law enforcement, Lord, that you uh, be with them, that they turn to you also, Lord. Turn to your word, turn to you and be saved and turn to your word for wisdom. Lord, our whole nation needs to turn back to you. We are cascading down into moral decline into a moral pit of sin and debauchery and approving of everything that your culture disapproves, I mean that your word rather disapproves of. We're approving everything that the culture says is right and acceptable. But Lord, we're neglecting your word and your principles concerning uh, sexuality and concerning sex and, and concerning um, innocent life, you know, babies in the womb, concerning uh, marriage and all other types of things, concerning even our taxes, our finances. Father, we pray that our nation turns back to you and that the church rises up and that we be the church, that those of us who, who work in workplaces, that we live as, as uh, with the help of the Spirit, a consistent Christian witness. And when we fail, Lord, that we show humility that we show repentance, that we uh, ask for forgiveness, confess our sins. If we've sinned against other people, against our co-workers, especially those who are not Christian, that we confess those sins to them. Lord, that is how we ought to live as Christians. We're not going to do it perfectly, but Lord, when we do sin, especially in front of people, that we show humility and show that, hey, I am a fallen sinner, but I am saved by grace. And because I'm saved by grace, my sins have already been forgiven, that Christ has wiped my sin record clean and not act as if I don't sin at all. So Lord, may we live that way in the public square, live a consistent Christian witness so that when people ask us for the hope that lies within us, we will be able to answer it. We'll be able to point them to Christ and say, hey, this is what Christ did. He paid for my sins. He died in my place. And he died in your place. And all you have to do is receive him as your Lord and Savior. And your sins too can be forgiven. Help us to live that witness, Lord, as the church. On our jobs, in our homes, with our family members, uh, wherever we may be at school, with our peers. May we be the church and live that life. Lord, we pray for... Um, the assistant pastor at Anderson uh, Bible Chapel. 
We pray, Lord, that you be with him and his family as he uh, looks for a, a home to stay in. As Bob sent out the message to uh, our fellow pastors uh, uh, this past week, uh, Brian Sullivan and his family, Lord, they're looking for a place to rent so that they can settle into this area. He and his wife have three boys, and they need an adequate rental, of course, in a safe neighborhood. And, Lord, we're praying that uh, you open a door for them to be able to do that and settle into uh, where they're living uh, right now here in Anniston and be with them. And, Lord, we pray for Anniston Bible Church and Grace Fellowship, Redeemer, and Christian Fellowship. We're here at the Living Church that we continue to lead our churches well, continue to glorify you in everything we do, continue, Lord, to preach the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, be with us all as brethren. Thank you for these men who love and honor and serve each other, and we love, honor, and serve our churches. Lord, may you help us to continue to be faithful to the work of pastoral ministry. And Lord, bless this sermon as we continue in the second chapter of Ezra, looking at the last uh, principle concerning your faithfulness to your chosen people. Lord, may we see you as the faithful God, that you are faithful to your people, that you are faithful to fulfill all the promises that you have made to us in your word. And Lord, that faithfulness leads us to be faithful, us to faithfully serve in our churches, us to faithfully give in our churches, us to faithfully love our neighbors and love one another us to be faithful in our marriages. May we see your faithfulness, Lord, as, as, a, as a guidepost. Us to be faithful. Lord, bless this message. Fill me with your spirit. And send your spirit to illuminate these truths that we're about to hear. And may you be pleased. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. We're again in the second chapter. So we're going to turn to it and... Uh, picking up with last week, we talked about uh, God is faithful to his uh, chosen people to disciple them and to restore them. And we talked about how God is faithful to his chosen people. Start with the covenant that he made with uh, Abraham. And then we show how God is faithful to discipline us. Remember the exile was God's way of disciplining uh, his unfaithful people. We talked about the different warnings that he gave them uh, back in Leviticus. How God had warned them about what would happen if they uh, had strayed away from him. And we saw that happen. And then we saw the results of it. We talked about consequences. And that God disciplines us to make us uh, more like him. And that the discipline of God is not uh, punishment. We talked about that God doesn't punish believers for their sins. Because Christ is the one who was punished for our sins. And then the third part of that principle we looked at was that God is faithful to restore. So God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to discipline. But he doesn't leave us there when he disciplines us. He goes from disciplining us to restoring us. And that's what he did with Israel. He disciplined them by sending them to exile for 70 years. And now he's restoring them by sending them back to Jerusalem to restore the temple. And to uh, restore public worship of God. So that was from last week. And we talked about how although God does 
restore us when he saves us, that he does not remove the consequences of our sinful actions away from us, that we still have to bear the consequences. But even in that, God gives us the grace to be able to endure the consequences of our sins. So that's where we were last week. So this morning we're going to look at principle number two coming from this second chapter. And that is that God's faithfulness to his chosen people is the means by which we are to live faithfully to his covenant. So in other words, God's faithfulness to us should in turn lead us to be faithful to him. That's what that means. God is not faithful to us for no reason. He's faithful to us. And because he's faithful to us, guess what? We have to be faithful to him. And so we're going to look at that this morning. So this is all done with the second chapter. Lessons from a list. What are we learning from this list of people? We're learning again about God's covenant faithfulness. God said that if they sin against him, he's going to drive them away into a foreign land. But that time was only going to be for 70 years. And God was faithful enough after those 70 years to do what? Bring the exiles back. So we see these 50,000 or so exiles that are being brought back, all these families, you know, all these different types of uh, Jews coming back, and they are being brought back to their land, not because of anything that they've done, but because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, that I will make you a great nation. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Had God allowed them to perish in Babylon, guess what? That promise would not have been fulfilled. And what, what need would we have to trust God then if he didn't fulfill that promise? So we're looking at God's faithfulness to his chosen people. And that is the means that we ought to live faithfully to God's covenant. So the first point under that is living faithfully to God's covenant implies continuity. Continuity basically means a continuous stream or continuous thread that goes unbroken. That's what we mean by continuity, things that just flow. You know, it's funny, uh, when we were leaving the house yesterday, we saw a squirrel in our backyard uh, opening up. You know, we have a maple tree back there, and we saw the squirrel just, you know, doing his little thing with his mouth. It's, it's, it's amazing how fast they do that unpeel the shell off the maple and then take the maple and take it and dig a little hole in the ground and put it in there and go and get another one. And when I was telling a friend, I said, if you notice how a squirrel moves, it moves like in a robotic way. Squirrels don't have like fluid motions. There's no continuity. They do this thing, that thing, they kind of move like this. You know, y'all have seen squirrels before you observe them. That's, that's how they move. They, they don't move in a continuous flowing way. They're not very graceful. It's like they're just scattered about everything. <laughs> that they do. They don't move in a smooth, continuous way. In other words, there's no continuity into how they move. But you see like a snake just kind of doing like that. It's, it's just a continuous, you know, movement. There's some continuity to their, their uh, tail following the head, and they just move at a smooth uh, rate. And so that's what we think about when we think about continuity. It moves smoothly and continuously. So this list that we see here shows 
uh, God preserving the continuity of the returning uh, Israelites with the pre-exiled Jews, okay? Because during this 70 years, the Jews that were taken into captivity, a lot of them died off. So that means that while they were in captivity, they had children. So this is probably the second or third generation of exiles who were coming back because the older ones who uh, were there pre-exile, they were, you know, I think you probably had some that were in their 60s or their 70s, which back then was old. If you live past 30, you were old in the ancient world. So you had the older ones that were going into exile. They were not old enough to see them come out of exile. So this list shows continuity of the returning Jews with those who came in before them. In other words, God is continuing his plan of redemption. There's continuity to it. Uh, they did not get cut off. Even when you go back to the account in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers, uh, when the 12 heads of the tribes went to spy out the land, and then they came back. And you had the 10 tribes, uh, representatives that said, uh, you know, they're giants over there. We can't conquer that land. We're, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. But then you had Joshua and Caleb who said, no, we can conquer that land. And those 10 rebellious tribes were cut off because of their rebellion. God told them that they're, they were basically going to circle in the wilderness and their carcasses were going to fall in the wilderness and that they were not going to be able to make it over to the promised land. But God didn't cut them all off because the tribes of, of Joshua and Caleb, all the ones under the age of 20, were going to make it into the promised land. We're going to cross the Jordan River. So what was God doing? He was continuing his plan of redemption. There was continuity there. He continued that plan of redemption. Think about, go back to Abraham. Abraham and Hagar. You know, uh, Sarah could have children. So she gave Abraham her handmaid. Her mistress, her, her helper, basically, her slave, Hagar. And what did Abraham do? He slept with Hagar. And who was born? Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son of promise to Abraham. Ishmael was not the one who was going to continue uh, Abraham's seed, his spiritual seed. Okay? So just imagine if Isaac was never born. Then that plan of redemption, that promise to Abraham to make him a great nation. Because what happened? When Isaac was born, Abraham died, Isaac got old, God had confirmed his covenant that he made to Abraham, to Isaac. Just as I swore to your father, I want to make you a great nation. Okay? Had Isaac not been born, God's plan of redemption would have been cut off. But it was by God's providential and sovereign will that that happened. So what do we see? Continuity. That God's plan of redemption never stopped. And this list of people shows that. And the thing about our culture and the day in which we live is that continuity is lost. 
you know, they live in a culture where things were passed down. But in our culture, in our nation, in our world, we don't value passing down and preserving family and spiritual continuity. Why is that? Because of the effects of sin. Divorce, broken families, uh, geographical moves have fragmented our society. Back in the old days, the true old days, wherever people were born, that's where they lived. And that's where they grew up. And that's where they died. And that's where their children lived. And that's why their children grew up. And that's where their children died. And their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Generations and generations of people grew up in one area. They didn't have to move. But, of course, with the industrialization of the world in the 1800s, you know, when factories started being built, and people were going to urban areas to search for jobs because that's where all the factories were. People migrated from the, the rural areas to the cities to find those factory jobs. And then began the transient nature of people. I don't live where I was born. You know, I grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama. I went out to the military. And when I got out there, I moved to Montgomery because I was in college. I was there for about 10 years. And then we moved to Gaston. And I've been in Anderson for the last 21 years. So I've been basically, what, five different places, you know, since I've been born. Because our, our culture, our society uh, doesn't uh, value continuity anymore. That's just the way things are. Uh, because things have changed, especially as far as work is concerned. But also broken families have caused their lack of continuity also. And passing down values, I do my best to pass down biblical values to my boys because I want them to see the importance of following God and how that looks, how that's going to look in their life uh, moving forward. You know, once it's handed out to them, it's up to them. I didn't have those things handed down to me because my parents were not Christian and they divorced when I was in ninth grade. You know, I did get advice and stuff from my, my dad and from my mom and from my grandmama. You know, a lot of it was worldly wisdom. Um, but they tried to pass down some, some type of values to me. But many people don't think about doing that now. We don't think about passing down values to our children or our grandchildren, you know, so forth and so on. What, what God uh, looks for us to do and how God looks for us to live in this world. This would be the most important thing we should pass down. What does God think? What does this matter to God? Why does this matter to God? Not why does it matter to people. Not why this matters to man. Because God is the one whom we should strive to please. In all things at all times. When we fail, as I said before, which we will in some things, we confess, we ask God to forgive us, which he will if we're in Christ, we have already been forgiven, and ask God to give us the strength to continue to pursue those things that are pleasing to him. But we should never stop in pursuit of doing that. So this continuity, I'm sure these exiles that came back heard stories from their grand grandparents and their ancestors that came into exile about why they came in exile. They probably told stories about how the Babylonians came in and, and tore down the temple and, and, and took them prisoner and captive and shipped them off to different parts of the empire. I'm sure they heard those stories. And so when they came back, guess what? They were, they were glad to come back. So we see about 
this continuity that God was continuing this people. The next principle under this is living faithfully to God's covenant implies community. Community basically means common unity. That's, that's, that's basically what it means, having things in common. These were not just a bunch of individuals coming back. This was a renewed nation. This was a nation coming back. They came from different cities in the Babylonian Empire because they were scattered about. They came from different cities. But they were coming to one center of worship. And where was that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was that city in Israel that sat up on a hill. It was literally the city on the hill. Jesus said in Matthew 5 to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that sat on the hill cannot be hid. He was talking about the temple. He was talking about Jerusalem. That, 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 that light, that city on the hill that is supposed to shine what to the whole world, to be that shining light or that shining example. They had a center of worship. They were supposed to be more about cooperation than competition. And the Acts church, the church in Acts is a good example of community. If you look at Acts, the second chapter, verses uh, 42 through 47, you'll see where the writer Luke, this was after the church was uh, established, after the day of Pentecost. You will see the church in action. And this is descriptive, not prescriptive. A lot of people have, have used this passage to say, this is what the church needs to be doing. We need to do these things. This is socialism in the Bible. That's what, they, that's what some people teach. That's not what this teaches. This is a, this is a principle. It is, pre, is describing what they did. It's not prescribing something that we should do. But there's a general point to be made about this. We're talking about uh, implying community, living faithfully to God's covenant. So look at Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is what the scripture says. It will help if I turn to Acts and not John. Here we go. So this is what the church did. First of all, going back to verse 40. Verse 38, Peter called these people to repent. Verse 40, and with many words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse or crooked generation. So he called them to what? Salvation. Then those who gladly received his word. Okay. They were baptized. They were already saved. They were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So, wow, 3,000 people added to the church. God regenerated them, saved them, changed their hearts, changed their disposition. So what did they do as a result of that? They formed a Christian community. They continued steadfastly in the doctrine, in teaching, okay, in the apostles' doctrine. Okay? The foundational content, John MacArthur said, the foundational content of their spiritual growth and maturity was scripture. Okay? God's revealed truth. The foundation of any good Christian community 
is scripture. That is our foundation. God's truth. And so you see the order of things here. First they said fast that they were saved. Now they committed themselves to what? To scripture. Okay. Then. And fellowship. Okay. Fellowship basically means partnering or sharing. Okay. And in the breaking of bread. That's referred to the Lord's table. Communion. So they observe communion. So you have the sacraments of baptism and communion right here. Then. Fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believe. Were together. And had all things in common. Now this doesn't mean that they thought the same way. What they did was they pooled their possessions. It says, and sold uh, their possessions and goods and divided among them all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, what do we see in here? We see community. The exiles that were coming back were a community of people. They didn't come back as individuals. They came back in groups. They weren't just individuals just trickling in. They came back together. Why? Because they were a community of God's people. And we are called to live faithful to God's covenant in community. We as a church are a community. Okay? Now, when you look at this passage right here, this doesn't mean that we go out and sell all of our possessions. Okay? That's not what it means. It says they sold their possessions. They sold some things to help others who were in need. That's what they did. That was common in that culture. And, you know, as believers, we do the same thing. We, we give to those who are in need that have a need. Okay? But, again, this is descriptive and not prescriptive. It's, it's describing what they did. It's not a command for us to do the same thing, but it's a principle in there. There was no one within that community who had need. And they continued daily meeting and breaking bread from house to house. They went to the temple to praise God. They observed the daily hours of prayer, uh, you know, that uh, they had. They shared uh, with one another. That's what it means to break bread from house to house. They just share with one another. And they were joyful because their single focus was on Jesus Christ. That is what brings joy to a Christian community. That is what brings joy to our church. We're centering our worship around Jesus Christ, not around your pastor, not around the songs that we sing or the preaching. We center our joy around Christ. And through Christ, we do all those things. That is what brings true community. And I'm going to tell you this. The Christian community is the only true community. Because we have one person. 
who all believers are united in, and that is who? Christ. We have a union with Christ. When we are received into Christ's family, just as they were, they received the gospel message, they believed on Christ, they were baptized, and they were received into the family of God. And now guess what? You have the same relationship with everyone else everywhere who is in Christ. You are a Christian community. Whenever Christians come together, we are a Christian community and we have Christ in common with each other. And guess what? That matters over the color of your skin. That matters over your sex, whether you're male or female. That matters over your income status, whether you're poor or rich. It does not matter. When you are in Christ, you're part of the same community. These exiles, when they came back, there were some poor exiles among them. There were some who were wealthy. There were some who were priests. There were some who were workers in the temple. There were some who didn't even know that they were Jews because it was not verified. But guess what? They came back as what? One. And that's how we live faithfully before God as a community just as these exiles did. The sad thing is that we live in a very competitive society. Our society, Western society, is uh, fostered an individualistic mindset. The maverick, the loner, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need other people. You know, for the Christian, that's unbiblical. We're not to be an island unto ourselves. We're not talking about personality-wise where you're introvert and you don't like being around a lot of people. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about as far as community, doing things together. Our society is all about what? Doing your own thing, right? Forget other people. I don't need other people to help me. Actually, if you do, you're doing something on your own. You got to have some help. <laughs> but our society teaches what? Individualism. We live in a highly individualistic culture. We make decisions based on what? How we feel about it. Not how it's going to affect other people. We don't care about how it affects other people. No, I'm going to do it. Why? Because it's me. Think about my body, my choice. Abortion. It's my body. You can't tell me what to do with my body. That's what those feminists say. They're fighting for the right to kill their children in their womb. But what do they say? My body, my choice. That's the mantra. That's the slogan. It's my body. I can do whatever I want to do with it. But guess what? It's not. You have a person growing inside of you, another image bearer of God. But that's what they say. Those who are confused about their sex. What do they say? That's how I feel in my body. You're not inside my body. You don't know how I feel. So what are they going to do? They go change themselves to try to look like how they feel. Why? Because they say it's my body. The individualistic mindset. My body. If I want to mutilate it, if I want to take puberty blockers, or of the parents pushing their babies to take these puberty blockers. 
I'll do it. Why? Because it's me. It's my body. I can do whatever I want to do with it. And we rejected God and we've done it. But that's what our culture teaches. And it's just not in those areas. It's in other areas of our life too. We think too much about ourselves. And we have to fight against that. Because scripture tells us to not look out only for our own needs, but also for the needs of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 2. Our competitive society has fostered an individual, individualistic mindset. But Christ, on the other hand, has one body. And believers, again, we are in union with Christ and with one another. We are one in Christ. And Paul emphasizes this in Ephesians 1. And this is what he says in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 22 and 23. And listen to this. He says, listen to the words. And he put all things, he being Christ, under his feet and gave him to be head of all things to the church, which is his body. The church is Christ's body. The fullness of him who feels all in all. If you're saved, you're part of the church. And if you're part of the church, you're part of Christ's body. You're not a renegade. You're not a rebel. If you're a rebel, you're not part of Christ. If you're in Christ, you're part of the church. The church is made up of regenerate people. Unbelievers are not in the church. They may come to church, but they're not of the church. They're not in the church. But those of us who are in the church, we're saved. We are in Christ because we are his body. And Paul says that. And then Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul says this. Now then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We're all members of the household of God. That makes us a community. And that's what we see in Ezra 2. And that points to our community that we have our union in Christ. And then the last point in this principle, living faithfully to God's covenant implies Commitment. Now, we see this definitely in this list. Our commitment to God is a response to his grace. It's not a way to earn his grace. The question I ask is, how committed are you to your church? How committed are these people, these exiles, to the work of coming back? The commitment of traveling and arriving at ruin and destruction and willing to do what God 
require of them to see him enthroned among them. It took great commitment to do that. And their travels were not easy. Traveling from where they were to Jerusalem. They were traveling to a city that was ruined. That was in ruins. That's what they were traveling to. They were traveling to destruction. Their homeland lay in ruins. Their home nation, the, the temple where their, 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 their ancestors, the generations before, had worshipped God, had gone up to worship. Guess what? It was destroyed. But they were willing to do what God had required of them, to see him enthroned among them in the temple. That, that took commitment. That's a great commitment for them to do that, to come back and to say, okay, we're going to reestablish worship of God here. They traveled a long way. We're going to talk about in the coming weeks how, how far they traveled, but they traveled a long way to get to this place. And it required great commitment to do it. But they were ready for the work. So there are three strands of commitment that we see in that statement. Number one, they were committed to worship. The order of worship is set by the groups in verses 36 through 58 that we see in this chapter 2. You have the priests, you have the Levites, and you have the singers. Okay? Those all were the group that set the order of worship. You have the Nethanim, who were the temple workers. And you have the sons of Solomon's servants. All those groups from chapter 36 through 58 were those who were going to set worship in order in Jerusalem. Worship was orderly. And it was planned as to bring God glory. It was orderly. It was planned. It wasn't spontaneous. It was orderly. And the worship was holy. Why was it holy? Because if you look at verses 59 through 63, you see those who could not identify with Israel. They could not identify with their father's house, as it says here in verse 59. Verse 62. They sought to be registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. Why? Because worship had to be holy. The priesthood had to be holy. Non-Israelites could not be part of that. The governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So they could not worship God because worship of God was holy. The priesthood could not be defiled. And why is that? Because we, we've been looking at this and we've been studying through Leviticus. Holiness is essential to worship. That's why when we've been studying the sacrifices 
uh, that were made in the book of Leviticus, they all point to the fact that God is holy and God requires holiness out of his people and also out of those who are offering sacrifices up to his people. You know, the, uh, the priests and the high priests, they had to be holy. They had to clean themselves before they offer sacrifices and they had to clean themselves after the sacrifices were made. So what do we see in this? Holiness is essential to worship. A commitment to worship God in, even in, in our church. That's why we you know, do prayer of confession. We want to confess our sins to the Lord as we prepare to publicly worship him. But it doesn't start at church. It starts at home. It starts in your prayer closet. It starts as you're reading your word. You pray, Lord, make me holy. Make me like you. Make me hate sin. Make me love righteousness. Help me to not give in to the temptations of sin, rather. But rather, help me to take the way out as you will always faithfully provide. That's 1 Corinthians 10, around verses 11 12. God provides a way out. We commit ourselves to holiness. Are we going to be perfect in it? No. But the commitment means you're striving to do it. You're making every effort with the work of the Holy Spirit who works in you. It is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God works in us to pursue holiness. So when we come to church on Sunday, our hearts are bursting forth in worship. Why? Because we prepared our hearts throughout the week. We prepared our minds throughout the week. So we come together publicly to worship God. Our hearts are full of God. Our hearts are full of who he is and, and what he has done for us. Holiness is essential to worship. And that's why these people could not be of the priesthood because they cannot prove their lineage. Next under that is a commitment to service. This list shows a variety of service. Everyone served in a capacity. Some were visible and some were behind the scenes. But this is the thing. We have to ask ourselves, where's our commitment to service? Are we serving in a committed way in the local church. That is where, as they say, the rubber meets the road. Do we serve faithfully in our churches? And do you know that you can serve the church even when you're not at church by praying for the service? I learned that from somebody uh, a few years ago. Even if you're not able to be at church, when you're at home or out of town, you can still pray for the service, pray for the preaching of the word. You know, I always send the service details out. Uh, so those who are not able to be here, they can still read and pray, sing the songs of worship, read the scriptures, you know, meditate over the text. And then, of course, when the sermon is posted, you know, listen to the sermon. That's why we post it to the website uh, for visitors and for our members who may not be here. But we can serve the church even in our absence. All of us play a part in serving in the church in some capacity. 
Those flaws may be seen or they may be not seen. But there is a commitment, just as you see in this group. You see different groups of people with different work that was done. Everyone, all of these families had a role to play. All of us, even down to our children, you have a role to play in God's church. I remember when I was a kid growing up in church, uh, I wasn't taught that. We just went to church almost like checking, checking, checking something off a list so my great aunts could be satisfied that we went to church with them. I wasn't serving. Well, actually, I'll take that back. I was serving. I was, a, uh, I was in the choir. We had a little youth choir at our church, and I was a youth deacon. I forgot about that. It's been so long ago, like 40-something years ago. I was a, I was a youth deacon. The, the youth, youth Sunday was fourth Sunday. You know, we had the youth choir. I had my little blue, blue suit that my aunt bought me uh, with, with my white shirt and my blue tie, my black shoes. They made sure I was clean. That was the only good suit I had. And, you know, when I was a little usher, I, I wore that blue suit and went up to the choir stand and, and put that hot choir robe on and, you know, <laughs> sung our songs. You know, like, heroes, heroes from the dead. You know, all the orange started singing those songs. I ruined it, but... You know, the point is, we, we were just taught to serve. You know, you serve in church. You serve in the Lord's church. Although I wasn't a Christian at the time, I was still taught that, that principle by, by my old folks. Uh, my grandmother was on the missionary board at her church. You know, the Women's Missionary Union that a lot of Baptist churches uh, still have. You know, little groups and stuff within the church that do different things. Had little bake sales every year and stuff like that, you know they were serving in their church in, their, in that capacity. But God has called all of us to do that, that commitment to service, and that's what we see in this group. And then lastly, you see a commitment to giving. When they arrived at the temple, the temple was already in the process of being rebuilt. If you look at verses 68 through 69, this is what we see. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, they offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. Because guess what? It wasn't going to happen for free. It wasn't going to happen with thank yous. <laughs> According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas. 5,000 minas of silver and 100 priestly garments. The drachma was like a, uh, a Persian coin. So 1,500 uh, drachmas, I'm sorry, 61,000 gold drachmas was approximately 1,100 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. That's a lot of gold, approximately 1,100 pounds of gold. And the mina, uh, which were about 1.2 pounds, it says here, um, 5,000 minas. So that was about three tons of silver because the mina was silver. So yeah, 1,100 pounds, about half ton of gold, and about three pounds of silver. Three tons, rather. So you're talking about almost 6,000 pounds of silver. 
and then the priestly garments. Because the garments had fine linen and everything that could be, you know, they live in, they lived in a commodified culture where things were exchanged as commodities, not like physical money uh, necessarily. Like your clothes were worth something if they had like different things on them or a certain type of linen. Like purple linen was very expensive. So what did they do? They came back, they arrived at the temple, and they gave. And it says here, each gave according to what? Their ability. They gave according to their ability. And that's New Testament giving, by the way. And this is the thing. I, I mentioned this before a few weeks ago. New Testament giving is a higher standard than the tithe. Because New Testament giving is given according to your ability to give. And I always use this illustration. 10% of 100,000 is less than 10% of 10,000. The proportion is different. If a person has $100,000 and they give 10%, guess how much they have over? 90000 person who has $10,000 and they give 1000 they only have what? 9000 left. See the, see the difference in proportion? It's still 10%, but the effect is not the same. So the person who has more should do what? Give more, give in proportion to what they have. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 3-4. That's why I say it, so they gave according to their ability. So this is what Paul says laying this out. And I taught about this some years ago uh, when I taught on stewardship. Because the point is, is that there's no Christian who should not give anything unless you don't make anything, right? That's the only time you should give nothing is when you don't make anything. Because if you don't make anything, then guess what? You don't have anything to give. Okay? Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, verse 3, for I bear witness that according to their ability. Yes. And beyond their ability, they were freely willing. You're talking about those who, uh, the churches in Macedonia that gave him an offering. He says, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So in other words, Paul says, the Macedonians, this is the concept of free will giving according to their abil uh, uh, ability. Giving is to be proportionate. God sets no fixed amount or percentage and expects his people to give based on what they have. And some people may want to give beyond what they have or beyond what they're able. That's fine. Because giving must be what? Sacrificial. Must be sacrificial. We're to give according to what we have, but it must be in proportions that are sacrificial. So that's what these people did when they gave. They had a commitment to giving. Each gave according to their ability. And we see Paul again praise the Macedonians in their giving for doing the same thing. But it also must be uh, sacrificial 
And then Paul said here in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, concerning the collection of the saints. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So he was telling them first day of the week. And this is a, uh, early evidence that the, the church, early church gathered on a Sunday, by the way. <laughs> he was saying that it didn't have to be every first day of the week, but the principle is that giving should be regular. Not just when a person feels generous. Okay. Our giving should be regular. I always say you give in proportion to when you get paid. You know, if you want to do more, that's fine. If you get paid once a month, you give once a month. Or you want to give in between, you're free to do that because it's free will. If you get paid twice a month or every week, you should give something, you know, according to that, uh, according to as God has given to you. That's just a principle. It's not a, it's not a law. We don't want to make a law where there is no law but the overarching principle is we give freely we give as often as we receive and we give in proportion to what we have those are the three principles of giving that we should have as believers and also it has to come from a willing heart you know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, don't, don't give out of compulsion. Why? What kind of giver does God love? A cheerful giver. When you see this example in the book of Ezra, these people gave willingly. When you see in 1 Chronicles 29, when David uh, was taking up the offering for the temple, that the people gave cheerfully. They gave willfully. They gave above and beyond so much that, that David broke out in praise read that in first chronicles 29 because the the people gave so much to the building of the temple and that is the way i give it should be it should be a proportion it should be regularly based on what we have and our friend will tell you i don't know who gives what in our church i only know what i give and what my family gives that's that's all i know i don't know I don't know who gives. I don't know how regular people give. I, I really don't. I don't. I don't care to know, because I may have to go on more stronger blood pressure medicine. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I really, and she'll tell you, I don't. I don't. I don't even ask. I really don't, because it may be a little point of stress for me, but it may not be. Maybe a point of joy, but most pastors, you know, we don't. We don't uh, dabble ourselves into those uh, affairs uh, because it could be very, uh, uh, you know, it could be a point of stress for a lot of pastors if, if people are not, uh, are not giving to, to the Lord's work. Uh, but the point is I, I, I trust that the Lord is working in everyone's hearts uh, to give to his work. Uh, I remember, um, you know, Deborah Wiggins, you know, she said something um, very true to me one time. Uh, I remember, I remember like it was yesterday. I was driving down Quintard, going down that hill right there, and I was on the phone with her, and she said, "If God doesn't have their heart, He's not going to have their wallet." And I said, "Wow, <laughs> I still remember her saying that." 
If God doesn't have our hearts, he's not going to have our wallet. If God didn't have the hearts of these people, guess what? They wouldn't have given to that work. They would have come back and just said, oh, well, I guess it'll have to build itself. You know, as my high school band director said, nothing happens by osmosis. You know, it's not going to just come together. <laughs> you know, you got to put in some work. You got you to build. You got to do. So the commitment is in our giving also. Each one according to their ability. And if you're able to give beyond your ability. And we've been very blessed and very fortunate for people to just give to us out of the blue. People who are not even members of our church. Every now and then we've had it happen. People just send in, oh, I just want to bless you. I just want to be a blessing to your, to your church. We've had that happen recently. You know, God just does that. He works in people's hearts. But the hearts he works in, most of those who are, are part of the local church. And so that's what we see there in that last principle. Amen? So some conclusions before we get to our application. Are you one of God's chosen? I had somebody, uh, when I did this sermon uh, back in 2016, you know, Second uh, Peter 1 and 10 says, make your call and an election sure. And I'm, I'm asking this question thinking about those people who came back with the exiles who couldn't prove that they were Israelites, that they were Jews, and they could not participate in, in the priesthood because of that. Somebody asked me at that time, how can a person know that he or she is one of God's elect? And my answer was this. I said, that's very simple. Answer this question. Have you truly confessed that you are a sinner? Repented of your sins. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And is there any evidence of that fact in your life? Again. It's not perfect, but the evidence would be there. In our fight, our struggle against sin, our growing in grace, our growing in um, the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The evidence will be there. We may, we may sputter and spatter here and there, you know, like a car trying to get going. You're cut on me, backfiring here and there. Where you give it gas, and then after a while, those, those cylinders start firing. Then that timing gets right. Then next thing you know, it's going. It may even sputter. You have heard vehicles do that sometimes, riding down the road, sputtering, and you know, pop, pop, you know. But they're still what? They're still moving. You may hit a little pothole here and there, a speed bump. You may get a flat tire, spiritually speaking. But you don't just sit on the side of the road and abandon your car. You ask for help. Even you had to get a tow truck. You may have those happen in your spiritual life. But the evidence would be that you persevere in your faith. You persevere in, 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 in faithfulness. You persevere in fighting sin because you know that sin has been defeated in Christ. Are we submitting to the faithful discipline of the Lord? When, when the Lord disciplines us, do we fight against it? Do we think that God is punishing us, which we know that he doesn't punish believers? Or do we receive the corrective discipline of the Lord 
as a means to help us grow. Israel had to take it for 70 years. They had to receive it. Are we faithfully living to God's covenant? This chapter is a witness to God's enduring faithfulness to his people. Our response to his faithfulness should be to live faithfully to him and to his covenant. We know God is so faithful. Our response to God's faithfulness is not to receive it and take it for granted. Our response to God's faithfulness is for we ourselves to be what? Faithful to him, to his commands. And think about during the week. I talked about this a little while ago. Living and preparing ourselves for Sunday worship during the week. Every week should be a build up to the Lord's day. We leave out here today. We go eat, take a nap, which are some of the best naps. Those after church naps are so good. Man, those Sunday afternoon naps are good. Yes. I don't do as much as I used to, but man, when I did. Woo, those would be the best naps. Y- y'all know about those Sunday afternoon naps? Yeah. It'll come. <laughs> I, I, I haven't had one in a while, but I, I do remember. They're like the best naps. <laughs> Amen. So then after that, of course, we have the, the, the grind of work and school. But at the same time, we have to always remember that Sunday's on its way and that we prepare ourselves through the week. Next week, we got our communion. You know, that's a build up. That's a big thing. Participating in the Lord's table, commemorating the, the death of Christ and his work on the cross. That's something for us to look forward to. And we got our fellowship meal, not just the food. But just fellowshipping with other believers. I, I love to see when we're all just talking and eating. It just, it's, it's so sweet. It's, it's sweet to the Lord. And it's sweet to me. I'm sure it's sweet to some of y'all just seeing the saints just fellowshipping with each other. The kids talking and playing with each other. That's, that's, that's sweet to the Lord. How are we preparing for that during the week? It's not like a switch, people, where we just turn off after we dismiss and seeing the doxology. And then you turn it back on at 10.30 next Sunday. It's something we do throughout the week in preparing ourselves. We're reading scripture. We're praying. We're checking up on each other, which I like that we do through text. That's always encouraging to see that. Praying for each other. Those are things that help us to grow. All right, applications here. Four of them. Number one. What's the first one? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Open it up and read it. When I, when I was first saved, I didn't have any guidance. I just started reading my Bible. Had my, I still got my very first Bible that I had. It's about torn to pieces. It's an old school field study Bible. It's highlighted everywhere. I was just reading the Bible. I wasn't taught how to you know, look at scriptures and context and all that, so forth and so on. And I'm not the hero. What I'm just saying is that I was, I was just ready to go. I just started reading my Bible. Then after a while, I learned how to read my Bible. It took me a long time. But I just opened up my Bible and just started reading. And wrote stuff down, wrote notes, took notes, wrote in the margins. 
you know, I got notebooks in my office from 1991, 92, where I was just writing down just observations, that, you know, no rhyme or reason, just, just reading. Pray for wisdom as you read. Lord, what is this passage showing me about you? You know, we talked about that before. Next, recall God's faithfulness when he disciplines. Know that God is faithful, although he disciplines us. Psalm 77 is about God's faithfulness to Israel, although he disciplined them. When you're being disciplined by the Lord, remember, God doesn't punish us. We keep saying that. If you're a believer and it feels like punishment, it's discipline. It's discipline. It's discipline. It's not punishment. Recall God's faithfulness. That he's with you. That if you're being disciplined, what did the writing Hebrews say? Then you are a son. The trouble comes if you're not being disciplined by God. And that means what? You're not a son. Because no one's going to punish or discipline a child who's not theirs. In the practical sense, they're not. Repent of lack of commitment. That can be an area of sin. Well, we're not, commit, we're not committed to the Lord's church, the Lord's work, committed to serving in the church. All of us, and our church has always been like that. Whatever you can find your hands to do in church, do it. If you want to be the person to make sure there's waters in the refrigerator, that's serving the church. Make sure the bathrooms are clean. Make sure there's enough tissue or paper towels. Make sure the, the scent things are filled or batteries. Anything big, small, it doesn't matter. Do it. It doesn't have to be something that people see. You want to be one of the ones to come in and set up a table fellowship meal on for Sunday. Do that. You want to come in and lay out the communion elements. Do that. Just serve. That's all it takes. Giving, same thing. Be committed to giving. Repent of not giving to the Lord's work. Lord, give me a heart to give. I know it is part of my duty as a believer, as part of your church, to give to the work of the church. We're trying to do some things in the future. You know, we're building back up our treasury from, was it 2018? You know, three years ago, August. We're, we're building back up from where we, where we were, uh, you know, before that. Because we're trying to do some things, but, you know, just give to the work of the church. I guarantee you all of it's not going to me. <laughs> I can promise you that. Lastly, renew your commitment to his covenant. If there are areas where you're not committed, whether in serving, whether in giving, whether in worshiping, preparing yourself for worship each week, if you're not committed in those areas, Renew to it. Commit to it. God will see to it that you do it because that is something that, <coughs> excuse me, he honors. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us go before him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us your faithfulness and your commitment to your people. Lord, help us, assist us in our commitments to you, to your church to worship, to serving, to serving one another, to serving where we work, where we go to school, 
Thank you, Lord, that through this list we see you continuing your story of redemption of your people, that you did not cut them off, but that you preserved a faithful remnant to come back to the land and to reestablish worship of you. Father, help us in areas that we've lacked. Help us in our areas of commitment to you. Help us, Lord, as we live each day throughout this week, that we commit ourselves to preparing for each Lord's Day. Help us with our mind, the sins of our mind, the sins of our mouth, and the sins in our actions. To confess them to you, to repent, to turn away from them, and to turn to the living Christ. Lord, may you bless this word. May you use it to convict sinners and bring them to repentance and faith in you and to encourage the saint to continue in faithfulness. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.